So, all of that really is a, a prelude to uh, uh, Sheldon Gowan's presentation this afternoon. Um, he will be known to many of you by name. He is the, the Nissan Professor of Japanese Studies at the Department of History, Princeton University. Um, he has degrees from Harvard and Yale. Uh, he has published several monographs, uh, some of which I'm sure you have read. Um, at the moment, he's here on a research project, a comparative research project, which he'll mention a, a little in the body of his talk, so I won't say any more about that. Uh, but he, he will be with us for the rest of... When I say with us, he will be in Oxford uh, for the rest of this term. So um, I look forward to seeing more of him, to talking more with him, and I'm sure that he'll be open to talk uh, to you as well at various points of this term. So, with all that as uh, a preliminary and just allowing a, a few more moments for those who have just arrived to sit down, um, I'll introduce Professor Sheldon Gellin. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you, Ian. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, it's In some ways, it's a wonderful day for me as an American. Uh, uh, first, this is, uh, this is the first time, I think, since I arrived in England, I actually saw the sun. Uh, and second, uh, it's, I'm celebrating because uh, this marks the day when my own country decided not to blow up the rest of the world. And that was decided late last night. And with that in mind, I really do feel free to talk about something very scholarly. I'm going to be talking about transnational history and Japan today. And as I think many of you know transnational history, or sometimes global history, since transnational is a sort of a subspecies of global history. Uh, this is really one of the hottest uh, fields or subfields in history today. Um, I think many of you are aware of what transnational history is. Uh, it goes beyond comparative history, which has been around for a long time, and it emphasizes the interconnectedness uh, between the various cases. And a key goal of transnational history is to really transcend national histories uh, by charting the movements of peoples, ideas, institutions across oceans and across borders. And, and some of this new transnational work I think has been truly fruitful and innovative. Uh, some of the work that I think is best is actually not particularly new. Uh, European historians have for a long time often uh, had second or third languages and looked at the interconnections among various European nations, um, early modern, medieval, and modern. So that's not particularly new. Uh, where we see it in, in new forms is, uh, I mean, one form is in my own country, uh, U.S. history. Uh, everybody and his mother right now is engaging in some sort of transnational history involving the United States. But a big problem uh, in what a lot of the Americans are doing, and, I'm, and here I'm not including the Europeans, is that all of, uh, many of these transnational histories in the United States uh, consist of uh, historians of the U.S. who uh, sadly speak no foreign language, uh, trying to make connections with some case B, but not really being particularly interested in case B or its own history, its own context, but just trying to establish some sort of flows, and it usually becomes very U.S.-centered. So that's been one major problem, I think, in the new, you could call it the new fad of transnational history. But also, in, in spatial terms, another problem with a lot of the transnational history as it's written today 
is it tends to center on the world of the North Atlantic, making connections between North America and Actually, Americans don't care about Canada. So connections between the U.S. and uh, and and Europe, uh, and uh, there's a little bit of work being done on the Europeans and the Americans and their colonies, but uh, there's a glaring gap that, for the most part, East Asia has not been part of these new transnational histories. And I think the exclusion of East Asia, and particularly Japan, has been a glaring gap. Uh, Japan, after all, emerged as uh, in the late 19th century, in the Meiji period, as an extraordinarily dynamic nation-state, uh, and the Japanese soon ranked among the world's great transnational learners in the sense that uh, whatever group of Japanese we're talking about, it can be bureaucrats, it can be entrepreneurs, it can be reformers, it can be radicals, um, all of them uh, tended to avidly study various Western practices and thinking uh, and often their detailed accounts and studies of the Western practices and policies they study actually can tell us a lot about global currents. And so, in, in other words, the Japanese are sort of at the center in the late 19th century and, and 20th century of many of these, this sort, you could call it sort of a global marketplace of ideas. The Japanese very much participating in this. Um, moreover, what I think we also learned from studying Japan as a transnational learner is that these transnational flows of ideas and institutions don't simply move in one direction. They don't simply move from the, the so-called west to the so-called periphery. Uh, and what one finds, I think, when one starts taking Japan seriously in this sort of study is that Japan was not only a taker, but in some cases a maker of transnational knowledge. In other words, others were learning from Japan just as Japan was learning from others. And uh, one can find various instances, and I'll talk about it, uh, one of them today, uh, in which Japanese models and uh, inspirations uh, played a big role in influencing certainly Japan's Asian neighbors in East and in Southeast and South Asia, uh, but also at times Japanese ideas, practices, institutions also influence various Western nations, I think in, in rather dramatic fashion. Again, as I'll, I'll try and explain in a few minutes. Uh, so I am convinced that scholars of Japan can really make valuable contributions, uh, not only to the study of Japan, but also uh, to the study of global and transnational history in general. And I think, in a sense, that, that um, those of us who are in Japanese studies uh, should think very seriously about how we can contribute to global history and other histories. We should, in a sense, uh, exploit what uh, Adam Smith and other terms called comparative advantage. We have a certain comparative advantage. We have an advantage in knowing how to compare, uh, partly because of the way that many of us have studied Japan. We know Japanese, a hard language. We know Japanese archives, not easy to use. Uh, and many of us, certainly at least in Europe, I can't say this in America, but many of us uh, know an, another language, uh, a European language or two. And so it's actually relatively easy for us as Japan scholars to go the other way and to think about case B or case C and to think about it seriously, to do archival research in these other countries and to really ex examine the various international flows of ideas, institutions, and other things. Uh, it's certainly much easier for us to go in that direction than it would be for our colleagues who do Western cases to suddenly learn Japanese 
and Japanese archives. So uh, it's not something that I say all of us have to do, but if you are so inclined to be comparative and transnational, we do have a certain edge, a comparative advantage. Uh, second, I think the transnational method uh, offers important contributions to Japanese studies itself. Uh, I was a little struck when I came into the Nissan Institute that at one point you go up the stairs and it says Japanese studies only beyond this point. Uh, okay, I sort of understand what it means, uh, but if we take that seriously and intellectually, we're in trouble. And, and, and I think our fields of history or politics or anything else are in trouble. Um, Japanese studies only may not be enough beyond that point. Uh, and that, uh, that we can do it, and, and I think we should do it. Well, what does it do for us? Well, uh, in many important ways, uh, being somewhat transnational-minded tends to challenge uh, the myths of Japanese exceptionalism and uniqueness that so pervade our field. Many of the things in Japan that look so quote-unquote uniquely Japanese uh, were formed as part of encounters with other nations, and I'm going to specify this in a few minutes. Okay, well, that's my, my general introduction to this topic. Now, let me talk about some illustrations from, from my own work and, and, and others, but actually in this case mainly from my own work, uh, that exhibit uh, how at least one or two approaches uh, to transnational history of Japan. And I'm going to start um, with my own recent book, uh, which I present not only for selfish uh, self-promotion, uh, although, of course, that's always an element, uh, but there is a certain point. Uh, you will see it's, it's a book about the history of saving money around the world. But um, the subtitle, you'll note, is a little strange for uh, somebody uh, who does Japanese studies. <laughs> There's no mention of Japan. Okay, it's why America spends while the world saves, and I, I tactfully put Japan and the rest of the world, which, which is where I think it belongs, and then America, of course, belongs somewhere else. Uh, that's how it gets its own um, name. Uh, well, um, despite the title, uh, the American-centered uh, nature of it, I had originally intended to uh, write a book exclusively about how the Japanese government uh, historically encouraged thrift and saving since the Meiji period to the relatively recent past. And when I first started this project, I was thinking in a Japanese studies sort of way. I had assumed that the Japanese state was abnormally interventionist in trying to mold the various habits of, of its people. And you might recall I wrote an earlier book called Molding Japanese Minds, The State in Everyday Life. So I, I had really started from the premise that Japan was sort of out there, rather exceptional in trying to intervene in people's lives. Uh, in this case, you know, get them to save money and economize, you know, from an American perspective, very interventionist. And I thought Japan was quite exceptional, or at least maybe exceptional in a sort of an Asian sort of way. But the more I read the documents, the more I realized uh, that many of the mechanisms that the Japanese state used to intervene in society, in this case to promote saving, moral suasion, um, were actually adopted in conscious emulation of European practices and thinking uh, that uh, Japanese, important Japanese, saw at the time in the late 19th and 20th centuries. And so that, again, the transnational nature of how 
the Japanese state formed its ideas of intervention. I'm not saying they were totally new. Obviously, there's a long history of intervention from the Tokugawa period. But nonetheless, the particular ways and the mechanisms, a lot of this was emulated or at least formed in, in encounters uh, with uh, Western cases at the time. And I realized that, um, that much more exciting than talking about the quirkiness or uniqueness of the Japanese state, uh, it would be very interesting to write this global history of how states intervene, and again, in this case, uh, to promote saving, although it could have been in any sort of area. Um, and furthermore, I recognize that if we're going to understand um, the ways that the modern Japanese state was formed after the Meiji Restoration, we have to understand that it's very much in reference to a world of great powers that Japanese officials saw at the time in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It's a world somewhat different than our world today, a world in which states felt very free in the name of national power uh, and social stability to <coughs> intervene in ways that we might find a little officious today. But nonetheless, this is the sort of world in which modern Japan and the modern Japanese state was formed. So uh, I decided that was really m much more important to try and understand the world that the Japanese saw at the time in the 19th and 20th centuries. And when we do this, you know, we realize that that when the Japanese, Japanese officials and reformers and others looked around, they saw worlds where, in the 19th century, where large numbers of European societies, in terms of creating more powerful societies, more orderly societies, more disciplined societies, were really intervening. And again, I'm going to mainly draw off my work on saving here, uh, but you have to understand it's not just about saving. These states and governments are, are intervening in all sorts of ways. Well, one of the ways they did it from the early 19th century, uh, European, first of all, cities, then nation states, thought that it was very important to mold the economic behavior of, of their people whom they increasingly were thinking about as citizens, you know, not just, not just passive subjects, but active citizens in the process of making power. Uh, one of the ways they did it, well, many ways, they constructed a large number of social institutions. I mean, one can think of, you're starting to see the gradual and then rapid spread of mass education in 19th century Europe. But one thing was something we don't think about as a sort of a Foucauldian social institution, but the savings bank, um, which is not something that particularly in exists anymore in England, but uh, in Britain, but certainly did in a big way uh, up to about the last 20 years or so. Um, savings banks were a social institution that European reformers and nation states began founding on a really abundant basis in the early 19th century. The idea was to take the working poor uh, to give them some sort of stake in the social order, to allow them to save up uh, also so that they wouldn't become wards of poor laws and poor relief, that they would become these self-reliant citizens who would make their societies and then their nations more powerful. So you had these very interventionist savings banks, which were not just financial institutions, they were moral institutions. I mean, you went in and you said, I want to withdraw money, and they said, 
I don't think you should withdraw your money. Um, that that would not unless, not unless it's an investment, maybe an apprenticeship, but you shouldn't withdraw it to spend on getting yourself a new coat. So they're very they're very interventionist, very pushy, very moralistic, and they're part of this general move in social institutions European that are happening in the 19th century. Again, with the Japanese are seen. Now, there's another interesting aspect that, Ian, I'm not sure, you may be blocking oh, things. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Okay, I may be blocking things, too. Let me know. Can you all see this? Um, there are interesting gender uh, dimensions in all of this. And this, this is this, you know, this English savings post. Thank you. 1850s. Note the gender component here. Uh, the man is saying, it's my industry, my hard work, uh, but her saving. You're already starting to see the idea of the sort of the middle class housewife as the person who manages the saving and the consumption of the family. Those of us in Japanese studies should see this as familiar, but one has to understand that Japanese were not always like this. They saw things like that. Okay, so we have, we start out with a social institution like the savings banks, uh, and then something the Japanese in the Meiji period saw in the early Meiji period in the 1870s was they saw this new institution that everybody was talking about in Europe called the Postal Savings Bank. Or the, um, and uh, this was first founded right here in Britain uh, in 1861. Uh, it spread all over Europe, but it also spread very rapidly to Japan. Now, one of the postal savings, well, those people who are British, European, know that postal savings is not uniquely Japanese. Most of uh, my American colleagues think that postal savings is uniquely Japanese because they've heard a lot about it. Uh, but it was an emulation, a very conscious emulation by Japanese government very early on. Started in 1875. Japanese were actually uh, one of the first governments to actually adopt this, but then almost everybody did except for Americans very late and Germans very late, but almost everybody else adopted it. Um, so this was another thing, the use of state power now, not just local savings banks, but state power to intervene in the lives of people. Now, I don't want to imply that the Japanese are just slavish mimics um, in these cases, because what's interesting about transnational links is that countries see what's sort of out there in this global marketplace, but often they have to ad adapt them to local conditions or they have to innovate. In the case of Japanese postal savings, the British Postal Savings Bank had really been a, a post office savings bank, had been established mainly as a social policy institution, help the working poor, integrate the working poor. It was not so much to accumulate money to finance things, uh, because there were a lot of banks and a lot of merchant banks and other banks in Britain. Japan in the 1870s there were almost no banks. Um, this, is, this is the new Meiji structure. Uh, and very quickly, within about 10 years, Japanese bureaucrats in the Ministry of Finance realized that the little itty-bitty savings of millions and millions of people became a major form of finance if the Japanese bureaucracy controlled it. Okay, the rest is history. We know the story, right? Um, but so... This is an innovation, Japanese using the Postal Savings Bank not simply for social policy, but to use it in order to finance state proje uh, product, uh, projects, I should say, the military, um, infrastructure, and things like that. So, so you get this innovation. Now, what else did the Japanese see around them um, in the world of the late 19th century? Well, they see lots of moral treatises that are bestsellers on character building 
but not just character building for the individual, but character building and nation building are very much going together. The idea is to construct people, um, again, citizens who are self-reliant, but you're not just doing it for their own good, uh, but it makes for a stronger society and nation. Um, and this is a period of mass education, mass conscript conscription. So you really character building, nation building very, very closely together. Many of you know this if you study uh, Meiji uh, literature, culture, and other things. Um, the key person here, but certainly by no means the only person, is uh, this Scot named Samuel Smiles, who writes this famous book called Self-Help in 1859. He writes lots of other books about character building, including Thrift in 1875. These are bestsellers, but not only in Britain and not only in Europe, but I think, as some of you know, uh, these are very popular in Meiji Japan. Uh, and, and there's a very good book by Earl Kinmouth about this. Uh, but so, again, this idea, this is the world the Japanese see. Again, very much about constructing power out of character building and out of intervention in people's lives. Um, and another thing in this connection that uh, Japanese uh, officials and reformers would see uh, is they would see a lot of emphasis on trying to inculcate habits that were called civilized habits in children. Uh, the adults of the future, including getting them to be diligent and thrifty. Uh, what Japanese officials saw, and we know this from the documents, they saw lots of experiments in, 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 in what was called school savings programs. Uh, uh, actually starting Belgium was very important in this from the 1860s, France was, and other places. And this is very much recorded, and you can see the Japanese use these same sort of institutions of molding thrift and diligence in, ch in children. And of course, these later in post-war period, they're called kodomo no ginko and things like that. But, but again, these things are not indigenously Japanese. This is what's in the global marketplace. Uh, and in that connection, uh, they would uh, also see all around the so-called civilized world children lining up being disciplined uh, every Monday, bringing their coins in, giving them to the teacher or savings bank employee um, to, be, to be put in their accounts, you know, just pennies and centime and things like that. But the, again, the idea to teach them these habits. And they would see this everywhere, you know, from, from Munich to Manchester to Minneapolis, Minnesota, my, my home, uh, to Melbourne, Australia. I mean, it's really, a, you, saw, you, you talk about little transnational episodes in daily life. One of them would be School Savings Monday, where, you know, you could be sure that all over, um, you know, what was considered the advancing, advanced nations of the time, people were doing, children were doing more or less the same thing. Uh, I mean, this picture here on... On, on your left from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. I actually showed this in Heidelberg a couple of years ago, and my German audience was incredulous and said, well, you know, how'd you get, how'd you get Americans to line up in such an orderly, disciplined way? <laughs> and I said, well, that, that's easy. They're all Germans and Swedes. I mean, this is, a, this is an immigrant society in Minnesota. <laughs> but anyway, um, whether you believe that or not. Uh, okay, so this is what this is what uh, Japanese saw. Now let, let's get to the next episode or the, the next phase in the transnational history story. It's not simply about the Japanese taking in 
ideas, but about them actually creating their own ideas that are of interest uh, to the rest of the world. And a big moment, as I think some of you know, is the Russo-Japanese War, 1904 to 1905, big Japanese victory. Uh, and it's a period uh, when Japan itself uh, starts to become a model for other nations. And I think many of you know this story, uh, but certainly uh, was very important to stimulating Asian nationalism in places like China and India, uh, in uh, what becomes Indonesia, uh, in Turkey, uh, in Egypt. Uh, so certainly in the non-Western world, it was quite important, the Japanese victory, and also the way the Japanese did it. Uh, but it was also important, as some of you know, uh, for some Western societies. Uh, Japan as a model, as a result of the Russo-Japanese War, and the society where it had the biggest impact, of course, is right here, Britain, uh, where, where the Japanese victory, you know, partly because Japan is an ally of Britain at that point, but partly because of things happening in Britain, uh, Japan becomes very important as an inspiration for what some British refer reformers called national efficiency. Uh, there was a malaise in Britain after the, the Boer War in 1900, sense that Britain was declining, Germany was coming up fast, and Japan was kind of a nice safe model for inspiring the British to be what was called more nationally efficient, to learn how to mobilize their society, to make their people healthier, better educated, certainly more martial in spirit so they would be better fighters. Uh, so these are some of the things that British observers took back from examining uh, the Japanese victory. Uh, and, and it wasn't just military. Uh, British observers came back talking about Japan's success, the, the state's success in mobilizing civilians on the home front as well, getting them to sacrifice, getting them to work hard, again, getting them to save their money to finance the national effort. Uh, and this was actually brought back by, by many of these reformers. And uh, um, certainly, uh, some of you probably know these two books, uh, really fascinating. One is the one on the left, uh, Alfred Stead, a journalist in Japan, wrote a book in 1906, right after the war was over, called Great Japan, a play on Great Britain, a study in national efficiency. It has a foreword by Lord Roseberry, uh, the uh, Liberal Party uh, former prime minister at the time, talking about how Japan should, while England was muddling through, while Britain was muddling through, that Japan provided this sort of comprehensive model of the mobilized society. Um, not quite as interesting as a, a longtime uh, British um, academic in Japan, Henry Dyer, it's an engineer, I believe, Dainippon, um, the Britain of the East. But in various ways, the message of these, uh, these books was that Japan could be this useful model that it, what was happening in Japan was not exceptional. And now this is very interesting uh, because we'll also see H.G. Wells as one of these national efficiency people. Um, I may, may try and stand up because I realize I'm not seeing a lot of you. But um, in 1905, H.G. Wells writes a book that's not too well known anymore but called The Modern Utopia. 
Um, and in it, um, in his utopia, the guardians, the people who keep the utopia going, are called the samurai. And this is this kind of ratty-looking samurai that, you know, is mainly kind of, I, I don't know where he's from, but he's got Romanesque uh, features. Uh, he certainly doesn't look very Japanese in anything that he's got, but it's the order of the samurai. And, and so samurai became very big and bushido became very big. So this is when Bushido really hits uh, the Western stage, and I think a lot of you know this. Uh, but the story of Bushido is interesting. Why would British be interested in Bushido? I mean, that would seem so exceptionally Japanese, except that they figured out very quickly how Bushido could be translated into revitalization of the British people, again, mainly for national power and indeed for war. And the story of Bushido, I think some of you know this, but maybe not everyone. You know, this word that has become so iconic, so Japanese, has very interesting origins. You know, it starts out with this, 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 this famous Japanese Christian, um, uh, a Quaker, no less, writing about the samurai and military value, and I, I, I just find that kind of interesting. Um, but in 1899, he writes the book Bushido. He writes it in English. He writes it for a Western audience. It has to be translated years later into Japanese. Um, so he's not writing to the Japanese, he's writing to the West. Now, you don't have to read the whole thing here, but what's interesting is in his preface, he's trying to create what he thinks is the analog in Japan for chivalry and for moral education that his Belgian uh, uh, interlocutor uh, says, you know, do you have any idea of moral education? How do you impart it? And then and he basically says, I thought, and I thought about it. And the fact he has to think about it is kind of interesting. Uh, and then he says, ah, it's Bushido. Now, as anybody knows who studies Tokugawa Japan, Bushido doesn't make a lot of sense to most Japanese um, before the 20th century. To be shown, to be told that they are the descendants of the Bushi makes no sense because that's at most 5% of the population. Um, you know, it would have gotten you cut down in the Tokugawa period if the commoner went around saying, I'm a Bushi. Um, they couldn't do that. So this is something new. So. So this is sort of, this is very much created, but it's created in this encounter with the West. And what's interesting is the circularity of Bushido, because he creates it, um, Nitobe, in 1899, sort of on the shelf for a while. Then the Japanese win the Russo-Japanese War. You've got a bunch of Western journalists, and they don't read any Japanese. Uh, and the one book they read, the one book on their shelf is Bushido, so they figure out Bushido's the answer to why the Japanese won. Then, um, fast forward just a couple of years, Baden-Powell, founder of the Boy Scout movement, um, military man. Uh, he decides that Britain is in decline. You need this revitalization through the Boy Scouts. And um, Baden-Powell himself says, well, um, there's, you know, there's stuff we, we're learning from the Japanese, because he's writing right this time. And he said, well, chivalry um, in, in, in Britain, the knights of old, you know, this is really, uh, this is really declined in Britain. But, um, Whereas in Japan, for instance, it is taught to the children so it becomes with them a practice of their life. Uh, so Bushido is coming back to influence the Boy Scouts. And of course, I mean, it, this just keeps going and going. The directions of the arrows are always in all different directions. And then, of course, the Japanese adopt Boy Scouts. The whole point is, this is, again, this global marketplace, the transnational perspective, where you realize none of this is indigenously one place or another. It's really in dialogue with all these other events that are happening. Well, so the British 
national efficiency people are very much inspired by uh, what they see happening in Japan, both domestically and in military policy. Uh, and in World War I, I'm not trying to claim that the British are totally guided by Japan, but it's interesting that Britain in World War I actually leapfrogs a lot of its competitors in really organizing its home front, its production, its uh, saving and taxation things. There are savings groups organized everywhere. They organize lots of sort of Japanese-style, almost neighborhood associations, um, and very, very much a mobilized state, at least for its time. And a lot of that mobilization thinking in Britain comes from people who 10 years before were very much imbued with this national efficiency thing, and some of them were actually ardent <laughs> Japanophiles. So again, there's another link. So again, this stuff keeps going and going. What do the Japanese see now by World War I? Uh, of course, the Japanese are sort of minor players in the war, but they're very interested for the next war in what they see happening in Europe. Um, and this is what the Japanese saw and what they reported back since they sent teams of people in World War I was they saw, again, the Europeans upping, upping the level of intervention and mobilization of their citizens. Uh, these are just uh, to show you the transnational among the Western cases. Um, you've got these big national savings, war savings things in, in all of the belligerents, uh, the Western belligerents. Uh, so you have an interesting one where you, you, know, you start getting the same messages. There's a sort of almost a homogenization of messages. So you have two Joan of Arcs. Uh, one of them saves, uh, well, one of those and it's an inspiration of the woman in Britain. And in the same year, same poster basically, because the propagandists are actually in dialogue with each other, the Anglo-Americans. You get the same thing in the US. Now, admittedly, Joan of Arc actually makes a lot more sense in America than does in England, uh, because she's not so popular in England. Right. I mean, there's a little history that they tell us about this in America. You know, the other people, they have different histories than us. OK, so, uh, so you, you get that. But you also get the idea of women also being very important in, in the targets of intervention and of mobilization. And interestingly enough, Japanese, when they start reorganizing their mobilization campaigns and their savings campaigns, even in the peacetime in the 1920s, they've actually gathered a lot of these Western posters and studying Western campaigns of mobilization. So you get very similar iconography messages that maybe the woman of the house is really going to be from now on the, the target of state intervention. She's the saver. She's the consumer. Um, you know, it's almost the same poster, and you can find a French poster that looks almost identical to that, and it's not a coincidence. The Japanese government at the time is actually gathering the posters, I mean, actually seeing their collection, um, and they're basing their new campaigns, and it's interesting. So if you think about gender for a minute, um, before 1900, it'd be very difficult to talk about many Japanese housewives, shufu, I mean, people who were dedicated to not, you know, not being in productive labor, but being the organizers of the family, the mothers, the savers, the consumers. That was not particularly a, a distinctive role for Jap the Japanese woman of the house before um, the early 20th century. But by the 1920s, the Japanese state, particularly the home ministry, on the basis of what they have seen in the European war, the Great War, coming back and saying, well, you know, women have been this really underutilized resource in Japan. And of course, this is also in conjunction with uh, things happening from the women's side. Housewives magazines are 
Shufu no Tomo starts around this time. So this idea of women having this distinctive role, it's still an ideal role in the pre-war period, and post-war period will be very much a reality. But again, it's sort of, it's formed. I mean, not entirely, but it's formed in a, a significant degree, again, by the encounter uh, with the Western societies. Now, when we move into World War II, we see it's actually, it's a very, we call it a world war, Nobody actually takes it seriously, but it actually is a world war in the sense that there's an enormous exchange of information among the various belligerents in World War II uh, in how to organize their home fronts. Oops, I'm going to step on this in a minute. Um, well, one, and this is my new project. Um, uh, it's a transnational history of the home front, and that's what I'm, I think I'm doing here in Oxford uh, for this term. Uh, I'm actually looking at the British case here, and then I'm going to Germany after that. Uh, and, of course, I've been working on the Japanese case. Well, home fronts. Okay, this is interesting. Can a home front be looked at transnationally? If you think of the work that's done on Japan, or on Britain, or on America, home fronts are iconically national. You know, the British have their finest hour, right? As Britons, they were distinctive. They stood up. Um, well, uh, the Japanese home front is seen to be totally removed from events in the rest of the world. Uh, Japan totally isolated. Everything's about the imperial way and Japanese uniqueness. It's not true. Um, for Japan to fight a total war in World War II, uh, for the 20 years before that, planners were looking at how the First World War was fought, how the Second World War was fought. They know that big problems that Japan's going to encounter are things like inadequate food supply, because that's what happened to Germany in World War I. Uh, and they also know that likely they're going to be bombed from the air. Their cities, their home front is going to be the object of attack. Uh, this was the global thinking that developed on what's called strategic bombardment from the 1920s on, that the next war would be an air war. You wouldn't actually have to worry about destroying the troops on the other side. You just fly your planes over the troops and go to the enemy's cities and pulverize them. And by doing that, you will bring them to surrender. That was the sort of thinking. So that was the offense, but the defense was everybody knew they were going to be bombed. So the British knew they were going to be bombed. They began to prepare in 1924. The Germans in the 1930s knew they were going to be bombed. And the Japanese were pretty sure they were going to be bombed, despite their great distances. And of course, all these things turned out to be true. Um, but the way that home, home fronts were organized in the lead up and even during the war was a lot of exchange. You could call it even espionage about what your friends, but also your enemies, were doing. Because you had to learn from your enemies um, and how they were defending their home fronts, in this case, from aerial bombardment. And what you see is, is some actually impressive commonalities that are not coincidences. Um, everybody realizes they're going to have to prepare for local civil defense. Uh, they're going to have to construct shelters, but they're also going to have to organize their neighborhoods so that when the attacks come, that there are air raid wardens, like you would see in, in Britain and in Germany and Japan, and also neighborhood associations that would cooperate in getting people to safety, but also putting out the fires and cleaning up the damage. Uh, so this kind of neighborhood association idea, which in a sense is, has pretty deep roots in Japan, becomes pretty inspirational also to the others, not just because of Japan is doing this, but from World War I on, this idea of organizing your civilian population for various aspects of the war effort. So you have the Japanese neighborhood associations, 
Tsunami down below, uh, but you have similar associations in Nazi Germany and in Britain itself. Uh, and one also sees during this period that the Japanese are not cut off the way we think they are. We, we think they knew nothing about what was going on in the rest of the world during the Pacific War. It's simply not true. Um, I look through, it's called Kokumin Boku, it means civil defense. It's uh, one of several civil defense magazines uh, for how Japan is going to defend itself from aerial attack. And I discovered to my amazement that late into the war, the Japanese writers and officials and experts in this, this particular magazine and, and many others like it um, are saying this is how the Germans protect themselves from aerial bombardment. Um, you see this is a German case. Well, I thought, okay, well, they have, obviously they have ties with Germany, but then I was a little surprised to find lots and lots of articles for this is how the British defend themselves. Uh, and one of the things was the evacuation of children, which is a very important event in British history. Uh, starting with 1939 and the outbreak of the war, evacuation of hundreds of thousands of school children from London and some of the other big cities. Uh, and in 1944, the Japanese also, on the basis of what they observed in Britain and also Germany, do mass evacuations of Japanese school children. Um, but again, the British example is very important. I thought, okay, well, Japan has historic ties with Britain. Uh, they're certainly not going to be interested in a communist uh, basically enemy like the Soviet Union, but I found lots of things where they were admiringly saying, this is how the Soviet, Union's, uh, Soviet Union efficiently organizes its home front uh, and things like that. So, so the whole point being that not only in Japan, but really in all of World War II, we have to you know, stop thinking about these places as isolated and national and understand that the way they fight the war, the way they defend their populations from the war, are very much constructed, again, by this transnational story. Well, I'm, I'm moving, I think, let's see, I think I'm moving toward a close here. Um, and after the war is over, well, let's see, I'll skip the, uh, uh, well, okay. Just to show you again the parallelism, you appeal to workers, you know, to save and things like that. You can see the British poster, the Japanese poster, the bare-chested worker. These, again, are not accidents, but there's a lot of global study of propaganda uh, and also the use of women on the home front. Again, you have the Japanese one on your left, the British one on the right. A lot of similarities. But let's move into the post-war period. It's interesting, as some of you know, post-war Japan, a uh, period of, of massive austerity and lots of campaigns to uh, get Japanese to economize, to save their meager earnings, to, uh, to work hard and to bring the country back from destruction. This is a Japanese savings, national savings campaign. I thought this was uniquely Japanese when I first started doing it. And then I started reading the Japanese documents and realized that the Japanese Ministry of Finance and others in 1946 are saying, the post-war world is one of austerity. It doesn't matter whether you won or lose the, lost the war. Everybody is sort of biting the bullet, except for the Americans, of course, they don't have to. They don't have to do anything because they, they won and they never got bombed. But everybody else experiences destruction. It's a period of austerity. Certainly no consumer culture here. Uh, you've got to save. You've got to sacrifice. You've got to pay your taxes uh, to finance the comeback, the reconstruction of your countries in Britain. Huge save. The savings campaign called Keep On Saving, not just in the war itself, but in the post-war world as well, to save. And you can see it's not very nice 
uh, anti-Japanese poster on, on the right in the last phases of the war, but also the beginning of the post-war. Um, and you see a lot of parallelism. Um, and it's not just parallel, but Japanese officials are talking about how much they're learning from Britain and other places in these post-war austerity campaigns. Similarity of exports, uh, um, saving your money, uh, putting it into production, exporting, but not buying uh, the imports from other countries. And both the British and the Japanese referring to themselves as small island nations that have to export and thrive, uh, you know, or import and die, basically. Um, and again, interesting parallels, parallels in the, the use of women. Um, as, as the really big targets of state campaigns, particularly uh, with consumption and saving. Um, and so now you really have the iconic post-war Japanese housewife, uh, but as I said, she has grown up uh, uh, with a sort of conscious uh, um, monitoring of, of similar developments in, in particularly uh, the European countries. And you get the same posters again because, in this case, Japanese poster makers are looking at the British case, the Japanese, uh, but this idea of having balance between consumption and saving and using the same sort of posters. Well, um, let me move on to the last part here. Um, we've been talking so far about the Japanese encounter with the Western world, but as the Japanese economy grows in the post-war world, of course, Japan um, as many of us know, provides very potent models uh, to the rest of Asia and many successful rising Asian economies uh, adopt rather, I think self-consciously, Japanese modes of state intervention and economic growth, industrial policy, but also these massive moral suasion campaigns to get citizens to do what allegedly makes you a more uh, a powerful economy. Uh, of course, there's an immediate effect on South Korea. Um, not that South Koreans always want to admit this, but there's a big Japanese influence. Uh, I got in trouble for saying that once at the Bank of Korea, but I think we know it's kind of true. Um, and uh, Korean Bank of Korea is in close contact in the 1960s with the Bank of Japan. They mount very similar sorts of savings campaigns, frugality campaigns, uh, and but we also see the Japanese model elsewhere. Uh, again, another country that doesn't like to talk a lot about Japanese influences on it, but China. Uh, you can see in all sorts of ways, but again, here I'm just again focusing on saving. Uh, Chinese Postal Savings Bank, which had been, existed in the pre-war period and then uh, had basically collapsed and, and Mao put it to sleep for, for a long, long time, reestablished in 1986 documents show in very close cooperation with the Japanese Postal Savings Bank and it's a huge if those of anybody from China this is a this is a very big bank this is one of the biggest banks in China has over a hundred million customers um, so it's huge well let me close by uh, focusing on a certain image from Singapore another country which uh, which I think uh, was very impressed with with some aspects of Japanese political economy model uh, okay, so we close with an image like this. School savings campaign, 1970s. Dutiful Singaporean children lining up in just that really Asian way that they do. Um, Lee Kuan Yew, the former prime minister of Singapore, would talk about this is about Asian values. This is about Confucianism. This is about how Asians are superior to those materialistic, undisciplined Western peoples. Uh, and then, let's recall. Um, 
children lining up, being disciplined. Asian values? Maybe it's British values. After all, they're both Australia, Singapore, both British colonies, uh, former British colonies. Or maybe it's also in part a Japanese model, uh, Japanese occupation of Singapore, post-war Japanese uh, economic miracle being very important. So I close really with the thought that, you know, if, if we continue to do national histories and national studies, uh, we're going to see an image like that and just say Asian values, exceptionalism, oriental, whatever. Um, when we start using the transnational method, we see the world's a lot more interesting and, and much more interconnected. Thank you.